Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. On this episode, I'm interested in diplomatic negotiations. And it comes from my experience, my personal experience, where I met many negotiators. Some of them, they were excellent, but some of them, they were unprepared. They were high profile people who thought they know how to negotiate, but the opposite was true. So today I'm joined by Ida Menton. Ida, hello. Hi. Ida is a senior advisor, lecturer, researcher, and trainer in conflict management, negotiations, mediations, and conflict resolution. Ida has been training diplomats, government officials, and other people who are directly involved in negotiations. And she worked for many organizations like NATO, European Union, OSCE, and others. She has also conducted various trainings for diplomatic academies worldwide, Czechia, Estonia, Qatar, and Central Asia. Ida has been lecturing at various universities, but also she was running many training sessions, for instance, peace building, negotiations about the conflict and resolutions, negotiations with the diplomats. In the last three years, Ida has been coordinating a very successful project by OSCE called Living Memories. And lastly, Ida was publishing many articles, many brief policy papers, and leading also many projects in terms of modeling negotiations. For instance, model OSCE, It's a program which runs in Moldavia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, basically Central Asia. So Ida has tremendous experience in teaching negotiations and providing trainings for people involved in negotiations. Ida, let's start with the first question. And I think we need to give a little bit of overview. How the negotiations evolve? over the years? What are the milestones that you can spot as a person who is practicing negotiation skills and teaching negotiations? Yeah, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It really is a pleasure to discuss all of these topics. Um, I'm lucky to actually have been given the opportunity to do this for many years now. Uh, to train diplomats, military staff, business people, how to negotiate better. Um, for me, you know, this wasn't a profession that existed when I was studying. Um, it wasn't something that was a natural path. Uh, but I think with all the experiences I had before, for me, it was a natural path and something that um, looks like Of course, this is something that I would love to do when I grow up. So I'm very grateful that I carved that path for me. Um, but that was only possible because along the way, I met really fascinating people who helped me see what is it that I want to do and what are my skills and how I can contribute. First, to remind our viewers, um, you know, I, I came from a, a place that was very troubled in the time when it was very troubled. So I grew up in Yugoslavia, a country that doesn't exist anymore. And um, I'm Macedonian, but also American um, citizen now. And I live in the Czech Republic in Prague. So all of these societies have their burdens, have their uh, ways of solving their historical problems, disputes, and so on. So Just by being where I am, there was so much to see and learn. However, I understand that, you know, teaching negotiations is something that requires the basic understanding that this is not what we had for most of the human history. You know, we were not taught how to do this. Think of ancient times, you know. You had envoys who would be going to the other kingdoms. You had uh, military um, generals who would be, you know, invading and coming and, you know, saying, we're here. There was no space for a lot of uh, negotiation. This is a very new phenomenon that, you know, we as humanity have learned that we, you know, we know from ancient Greece that we are 
uh, political creatures. But that, you know, that required certain skills in a very, very thin layer of society. So um, until recently, it was basically done by aristocrats and all of their education was focused on manners, protocol, appropriate behavior. And it is only recently that things changed and one can get a job in a ministry of foreign affairs or can get a rank of a diplomat. Um, there are reasons and a lot needs to be learned about how that transition happened. Uh, but it is a, a process. Um, and, you know, all I'm saying is that many things uh, changed when diplomacy was democratized. Uh, the actors changed, the subjects who are conducting diplomacy, right? The know-how, the transfer of knowledge, uh, who to learn from and where you learn, right? Now we have diplomatic academies, which wasn't uh, the case until very recently. So, uh, and as much as all this is new, remember, for half of our population is even newer <laughs> as women entered politics and diplomacy even later. So now we have faculties who offer international relations. We have diplomatic academies, military academies, where you learn this, what some people call soft skills. I call them human skills because, you know, there's a human being. It's, um, it's really essential for you to know how to effectively communicate. Um, but what is new is that now you have trainers who are doing this. seems like, I mean, when I was growing up, when I was at university, this wasn't a skill that was available somewhere that I could learn from. I really had to search for universities and professors where I could learn this. Um, but like you, I already had some experience working with diplomats. And I'm like, why is it that some of them are very good and others are not? So... Um, I teach as a visiting professor at few universities, uh, but I came from the field, from international governmental organizations, mainly the OSC. I worked for the OSC for many years, and I feel that uh, that is where the conflict resolution, effective communication, negotiation and mediation skills are much more needed and really can make a change on the ground. So now we have trainers who help diplomats learn on the job how to advance, how to practice their skills, how to share, um, how to read about this topic, which is actually a luxury when you have these kind of jobs because it's 24-7. And uh, I had one American ambassador who said to me, do you think that my life is so luxurious that I can read 300-page book <laughs> and just be ready for something? Um, so, yes, you know, diplomats would like to have an ongoing training, but their work is demanding and they cannot really catch up with all the literature. Yesterday, I just attended a GCSP event that was focusing on the new agenda for peace, and the recommendations were back to basics, utilize diplomacy. So I think there is, I mean, part of it is really a flawed argument, given where we are politically in the world now. Um, and there is a huge debate about this. But I think there is also a huge opening for anyone who invested years in learning more about international relations, diplomacy, negotiations, and actually problem solving as such. And luckily, because of the work of some visionary people, like those that I have been learning from, Paul Mertz, Bill Zartman, Valérie Rousseau, they have created a pool of trainers and young scholars on negotiation who, can, who flirt with both academia and fieldwork and actually can provide a significant knowledge transfer to various groups. Excellent. And do you think the technology as a, as a dimension has what sort of impact on this development? Because you mentioned one one very important point, and that's the, the entering of women into politics and also women as a trainers and, and coaches of diplomatic skills and negotiations. But what's about technology? Diplomacy is, is you know, perceived as something traditional. So that contrast, how do you understand this? Well, I think that, um, you know, as much as diplomacy is traditional, as I said, a lot of things have changed recently. Um, and by recently, I mean, like, uh, until uh, the uh, the end of the Second World War, we barely had multilateral diplomacy. And that is huge. This is what most of our diplomatic efforts since 
have been, the end of the Cold War, Helsinki, and so on. So imagine for millennia, we had a completely different type, mainly bilateral, mainly, um, you know, communication that was based on who has more power. Because if you have less power, you know, why would I talk to you? I can just go and impose my uh, interest on you militarily or otherwise. Uh, so we have realized that, you know, that cycle of violence is not going to lead us to progressive times. Um, and, you know, especially in this part of, wor- of the world, in Central Europe, it's like from 30-year war to 100-year war. And, you know, when you look at the situation now, uh, the worrying pattern is that we we thought that we're out of that, but it seems like we're going back into the cycle of protracted uh, military conflicts. So you asked about technology, and I think technology warps our minds in a very strange way. I think I see that, uh, mind you, I'm from the generation that grew up having a landline where you can turn like this <laughs> to call somebody. These kids grow up with, uh, you know, my daughter laughs that, you know, I grew up without having a mobile phone. It's like, oh, my God, you're so old. These kids now grow up with their mobile phone. I mean, they're in in a um, stroller. They cannot walk and their parents give them a mobile phone. So they're hooked up to technology more than they are hooked up to other people and their community and so on. So in a way, I think we're we're seeing a radical change. and. I think uh, if we're smart and we know how to use technology, we can advance our human potential. But if not, we will become something that I really don't want to see because the the community of people that does not have human skills is really worrying to me. Uh, so COVID was scary, but was also an opportunity. You know, I, I usually work as a consultant and uh, I don't have a big machinery behind me, you know, the the finance people, the admin people, and so on. I have to do a lot of these things. And I'm sometimes very jealous of my colleagues who are in these big institutes and departments where they can work and talk to other people, experts, they can develop materials together. Uh, but most of all, I really envy the institutional capacity that they have. If they, If you have smart bosses, you can create technically advanced simulations. I mean, imagine if you have some IT person who is actually helping a negotiator. It's like, wow, where were you all of my life? And when you see these movies like James Bond and there are tons <laughs> of new movies, I just watched one last night. Um, you're like, where is that IT person behind me who can give me real life information when I need it right now? You know, and that has changed in diplomacy. Now everybody's sitting at the table and they're checking factually whether what the other party is saying is true. Uh, You know, as we are talking about things um, and discussing, you know, there is a lot going on in the field, on the ground that you need to check. There is opinion pieces coming out. There is, you know, media is affecting how negotiations will proceed and so on. So it is very important. But, you know, I think we need to learn how to use technology. So I was I remember I was fascinated by Prezi until I was told it is not actually what Tom Cruise had in Minority Report, where you just click and you take pictures and you make it amazing. It would be lovely if in our trainings we can make it more interactive, more interesting. And it's not only desirable, I think it's necessary. Um, You know, most of us are depending still on good old, uh, old PowerPoint. Uh, but there are some really fascinating other programs, other uh, things that we can use to make our um, our classroom more interactive, more interesting, because we are working with younger generation that does not appreciate like, you know, when I was at university, when my professor comes with a notebook and you just stare at them and that's all you get. Some of them have you know, uh, the capacity to be mesmerizing and to share new world, be open windows for you. But some of them don't get, don't get that naturally, don't have that. So um, don't get me wrong. Technology will not make an average speaker sound like Obama, you know, but can help a good presenter make a diplomatic negotiation class more real, more lively, up close and personal. Uh, I remember before the pandemic, 
uh, with uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Max Pievsky in Moldova. He he and I are doing the model OSC for 10 years this year, actually. Uh, we were taking pictures of him being chained to a monument. We're, we needed to spice up the story. So we were making our news item while the students were participating and um, uh, they used the, then we used the master computer for breaking the news, escalate the crisis. They were trying to solve, as media does, right? We're trying to make it more real for them to feel the pressure, how to do it. So I think due to my previous experience with media and theater, I like the adrenaline and the drama. And I try to make my students feel it so they can see how important emotions are, how often we underestimate them. Uh, when analyzing international relations and conflicts around the world. So technology can help that. Now, there are amazing simulations that you can just download, pay for online, and you can have your students actually enjoy video game because that is their world. When you mention your students and, and also clients, uh, let's start from some basic premises. So when you have a class of people coming for the training, for the negotiating training, what are the most common challenges that you face as a lecturer? Hmm. You're asking a very interesting question. So um, I, I actually jotted down a few of these things and I'd like to explore them. Um, there are a few things that, you know, we should really mention as a challenge for teaching international negotiations. Um, uh, one of them is... You know, you have diplomats who come to a training and they're like, I'm a diplomat, therefore I know how to negotiate. But as you mentioned in the introduction, I don't think that's true. And also, I think no matter how much you have read and no matter how many experiences you've had that you can ever in your life, maybe even in on your deathbed, that you can say, I know how to do this. Right. I don't think and I think this is a challenge why I took on this challenge it's like you will never know. You never know who is on the other side. You never know how prepared they are. You never know what their cultural background is. What barriers are you going to face in the course of the negotiation? So obviously, I cannot teach my participants all of that. I cannot be there with them when that happens. But as somebody said in a very action, <laughs> uh, super new movie um, that I watched recently, you know, the experts, the outstanding ones, are those that in the moment when things are happening, they can just press that button and and rock the situation and just excel, right? So what we're doing in our trainings is basically open up these topics for our participants to think, to read, to learn who are the people who have created this field of international negotiations, mediation, problem solving. And of course, there's so much that, you know, in this field is borrowed from psychology, from um, from economics, from um, pure politics, from ancient Greek philosophy and uh, mythology and so on. So that's a huge challenge, right? It is a huge challenge to bring as much there, but you need to sense what is it that they need? What is it that they know already? So a huge challenge for me is to assess um, the level of people and how much content can I give them um, and how much they can swallow. How much of that will be overwhelming and how much of what I'm talking about uh, for them is what they actually need and can run with. Another big challenge for me is, um, you know, trying to um to organize the content in a way that they have enough theory because they really need to go through it to understand the concepts uh, very often and to give them time to practice it and very often they realize oh my god it sounds so easy when somebody's talking about it it's a duh right but um but when you need to put it in practice in a role play or a simulation, it really isn't easy. That's why we have to have the debrief and talk. Why was it difficult? What are the skills that you actually feel you're not very strong at? How can you uh, become better and so on? And Ida, I, I can't skip this question. What's the difference between students 
as a university students who are basically learning negotiation skills and when you have experienced diplomats in the class? Um, well, you know, I usually see them all as participants, as some, you know, someone who is there so we can talk something that I'm very passionate about. Some Somebody that I can give something uh, from the the tons of books and, you know, interactions that I've had in the last 20 years. Um, so for me, it really doesn't make much of a difference. I think uh, I learn a lot from some of my participants. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, as one of my old professor uh, from Skopje said, um, you know, I feel like a vampire. I take your energy so that I can shine and give back to you. And um, it is fascinating how much energy we get from the people who are in the classroom as well, how much of their knowledge through these discussions. I mean, with my students in Central Asia, very often, um, you know, I learn so much about their region, about their cultural background, about how they are used to problem solving. Um, with professionals, it's the same thing. You know, we all come from different countries with different backgrounds. So uh, there is a difference because professionals, uh, you would assume, are more driven because they really need this at work. But on the other hand, a lot of them are just being sent to go to this training and go to that training, and they could care less. They're sitting on their phones and, you know, they're wasting my time and their time if they're not participating. Even worse, they're changing, you know, the, the group dynamic. I have not had a lot of problem with that. A lot of, uh, you know, trainers are worried that, oh, what if they don't participate? What if we are in the building, like in the European Commission, it is in their building. Uh, in in some of the you know other ministries where we have worked or diplomatic academies, uh, you know they're in their offices. They need to answer to emails and stuff. So that takes away from their attention. But once they commit that they will be with us for those two, three, or five days, I think it is really uh, fascinating to see them get engaged and try to to make the best out of it because they understand it's. They learn, they practice, they challenge themselves. They try to see how is it to be a friend in this scenario? How is it to be the Soviet Union, right? How is it to be a seller or uh, and so on? So I think all of us need to learn, to read a lot, but also to be in situations where you can practice uh, and challenge yourself to see uh, how much of what you know already you can actually implement when it comes to being in a situation. Using case studies is one of the most popular instruments uh, in, in many workshops and, and many classes where negotiation skills are presented and taught. But there are two ways or two camps in, in when it comes to case studies. And this is what I have from my students. Some of them, they argued that case studies are too ideal. So during the class, they feel very confident, but when they go outside to real world, they struggle how to implement those case studies in the, in the real situations. And the second camp, they basically follow case studies because they see the strategical value and strategical perspective of that. So my question is, how do you implement case studies in your teaching of negotiations? Well, I don't think you can you can say that case studies will, you know, and that created atmosphere in the classroom, artificially created atmosphere, can translate to real life ever. It will always be different because simply out there, there are so many animals in the jungle. There are so many other actors. Um, but what we do in the classroom is we're trying to focus on the problem. We're trying to teach them to understand the uh, the variety of interests out there by providing them with the opportunity to do multilateral negotiations, to, to hear obnoxious positions by other parties and think, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this? This is so opposite of what I want to achieve. 
I need to strategize and I need to persuade them. I need to convince them. I need to argue this well. So we're going back to Aristotle and learning how to do rhetorics, how to have um, ethos, how to have passion. These are basic skills. We knew them forever. But now we need to put them in the context of how to get what we want. So you have two different schools. One school says negotiation process is actually a process through which you will get what you want. And I go in the process uh, thinking that I'm going and I want to get this. So that's a very distributive process, right? Because the grabs are very limited. We all know what is the value that we need to somehow distribute and who, you know, you try to get more for yourself because, you know, I don't care how little they get. I care about how do I get what I came here for. And that is very different than having an integrative process in which you have to nurture a relationship. But I would argue in any negotiation process, you have to be very cautious and careful about relationship, about culture, about not offending somebody. And there are uh, things that are part of that, what Yuri and Fisher call principled negotiation, that you can make an effort. Now, when I say this, I really, when I teach, I'm really worried that some of my students would always go for this kind of approach. But out there, there are many sharks. Out there in the world, there are people who are in it to get and grab for themselves and are not willing to share and to build a community and so on. So you really need to know in which process you are and you really need to know how to position yourself. But in order to do that, you need to be very capable, very skilled, very adaptive and responsive. You need to be aware. All your senses need to be out there. I often share with my students a short uh, part of Sherlock uh, when Benedict Cumberbatch actually um, shows that he has the skills that we don't have, right? He looks at you and he has the human scanner. I wish I had that so that I know who I'm dealing with. But we need to develop these skills. We need to know psychology. We need to know what we're doing to other people when we're saying things in the way we're saying them. And how will they respond to that? What kind of um, response can we anticipate and so on? So I think, you know, case studies are one thing, but they're not, you cannot take that and say, aha, this is what we did in controlled situation. And this is what it will be outside. It will never be like that outside. Because it will depend on the other person that you will meet and how you will respond to them and how they will respond to you. And also, it will never be the same because everything is so intertwined. You will never be able and lucky, like in a classroom, to just do that one negotiation. You're negotiating one thing, but it's connected with three other processes that somebody else is doing. And that will affect the result of what uh, your negotiation um, agreement or you know, um, not being able to find an agreement will look like at the end. Many times when I'm teaching uh, my students, I, I don't teach negotiations, but I teach, teach international relations, and I have a certain preparation for my class, but there are always some notions going around like geopolitics, some events, some trends. And this always, you know, has tremendous impact on my lessons and lectures. How is it in your case when you have popular notions like human rights, climate change? Does this affect your teaching? Of course. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, this is a field that you can never say, I got this. You know, you, you can, there's so much going on that is like, how did this happen? Why, why did this happen? Why were we not able to to take another path um you know i spent most of my professional career in or around the osc that was the place that grew out of the negotiations in helsinki then the follow up meeting in belgrade madrid paris the charter of paris uh, uh the event that uh, you said in the beginning 
um, that we can, the project that you mentioned earlier, uh, where we met. Uh, the Charter of Paris was an amazing moment in history when we said we want a different future for Europe. We want peace and stability. It was enough of war and competition. Um, the OSCE was aimed at rapprochement, right? So I saw the end of my country, Yugoslavia. I grew up under embargoes, post-conflict atmosphere, in hope that justice will come, rule of law will set the record straight and we will live in democratic societies where public participation, investigative journalism will be encouraged, right? I grew up um, believing in the multilateral commitments stemming from the UN Charter, Helsinki, Paris, right? This was our weapon. This was our protection, our, you know, the vest we had on. And uh, it took a lot of time, effort by amazing diplomats to put those things in place, to create the puzzle of uh, international liberal institutionalism. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, it felt like my house of card, uh, cards has collapsed. It's like, how, how is this possible? How, did, how? Not that I was surprised, but why did we not do something different? Why did we say things that we didn't mean? Why did we not implement a lot of uh, the commitments that we wrote that we were obliged as countries to do? So, um, you know, um, it, it was in this fragmenting world, I find it hard to find the kryptonite. Uh, but the fact that we're led by mediocre leaders, inept diplomats, uh, opportunist oligarchs, gives me the strength to teach the new generation to fight back uh, and to be better than those who we expected to be the guardians of our galaxy. We we had high hopes. And, you know, it is you see what is happening geopolitically. Uh, and some of these things, especially now, it seems like it's tectonic changes. We're moving towards some different way of thinking and how we will do international relations uh, in the decades to come. Um, so I still teach about the principles and agreements and the normative frameworks, even if they have been violated and compromised. But giving up on them means giving up on believing in humanity, in solidarity, in trusting we can do better than this. I have gotten involved in some environmental governance work for the OSCE and um, and others. I did a project uh, in Macedonia, which is now called North Macedonia, thanks to Greece, um, in Central Asia. Um, you know, um, I worked on a food security project with an Irish colleague of mine, Philip McDonough, for the Dublin City University. And basically, I'm trying to do something meaningful, as we need multilateralism for global action. Otherwise, people will continue uh, dying hungry and we will destroy our only home. So I think we all need to find the passion for the most essential and basic things that we need to uh, negotiate and find the best way uh, forward. I'm 100% sure that when you travel and teach negotiations, many times you might face some difficult issues or sensitive issues, especially about territorial disputes. How do you address this? Because I can imagine when you go to Central Asia or you go to, for instance, the Caucasus, you know, some students might ask you, for instance, Azerbaijan and Armenia, where do you stand? You know, like mm. a very simple question, but it's not that simple question. So how do you address those sensitive issues during your teaching? Um. Usually, you know, I'm invited to do a course on topic like negotiation skills um, or empowering young people with some environmental um, uh, understanding skills and so on. So uh, let's say next month I will be in um, in Kazakhstan for a Central Asian uh, leadership meeting uh, on environmental governance. So there will be people from different ministries and so on. I don't think what they want from me is to hear what I think about the problems that they in Central Asia have. How, Where do I stand on 
the conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan on their border issues and so on. But what is interesting, and this is what I meant when I said I learn a lot from my from my uh, participants while I'm there, because it's not just a classroom time, right? I'm there for a week and we have dinners and we have um, out of classroom uh, chats. And it is really fascinating to hear their opinions and what is going on for me to understand and not to have that very limiting uh, foreigner approach that very often we have when we're very brisk, very black and white on what we see on the ground. Because those conflicts, especially frozen conflicts, are very difficult for us to comprehend. Even the people who live through them have very hard times, you know, finding what is right and what is wrong. You know, I come from a country that has been struggling with worldviews because we are at the crossroads of, you know, where many worldviews have met. You know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I came from a country that started the non-aligned movement, but we were considered to be a communist country. But we were not really communist in the way that the, the Soviet bloc was. There was an iron curtain there. So being somewhere in the middle has been, for me, you know, a thriving place. And that's where diplomacy thrives as well. You need to be able to understand both positions. You need to know where the problem stems from. Very often we identify the problem, but the, it has not existed for, uh, for the same amount of time for all the parties involved. Because we can see Ukraine as it is now, but, you know, many of us were able to predict what will happen in Ukraine and in Georgia because we knew Kosovo, because we knew that, you know, the other side will wake up their ugly ghosts to do what we saw was happening in the Balkans. Uh, and, you know, it is a very complex story to just see it in the moment. You have to find the actors, the different narratives that were being built up to be able to identify where the problem started and how it is seen by those who are in power. Putin always wanted to regain uh, the empire that in his mind Russia is. For many people, they moved on. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Central Asia, they're independent countries. But that doesn't mean that that worldview coincides and they share the same view. That doesn't mean that we in Europe want to see things that uh, in one way or another, you know. Um, so it is very, very difficult to uh, to have that, um, you know, black and white perspective and try to solve a very, very complex, very long uh, problems. My country has been going through uh, two very uncomfortable uh, situations with both Greece and currently with Bulgaria. And I've been writing quite a lot about this. Uh, and actually, just to add to your point, um, you know, I never think that we know everything for any uh, problem, conflict or situation. I have I grew up in the Balkans, but I would not even there that I have the answer for Kosovo today or Kosovo in five years or what Macedonia and Bulgaria will do now. I know that what we have to do right now is a different approach than what is happening on the ground. And I have been writing about how we can resolve it so it's a long-term solution rather than a short fix. Uh, but it's very difficult. And, uh, you know, simple solutions just kick the can down the road, but they do not provide for long-standing problem-solving and uh, cooperation. When people are going for the negotiation uh, teaching skills and, and courses, they often, you know, they want to negotiate straight away. I'm here for negotiation. Well, let's negotiate. But what is the role of theory in your teaching methods? Because we know oh. there is a sort of diplomatic theory. There is a theory of negotiations in diplomacy. And, and those, you know, those concepts, they always evolve in some way. So, Absolutely. So how, how do you teach uh, or what is the role of the theory in your teaching methods? Um, quite a lot, actually. And uh, 
you know, but I'm a nerd in a way. I I was always fascinated by, oh my God, there's somebody who wrote this book and this is a groundbreaking book that was written in the 80s and so on. I remember uh, when I studied at Klingendale in Leiden University where I did my master's in international relations, um, I uh, I met Paul Mertz, who became then uh, my mentor and a colleague and a very close friend. Now I really consider him a family. And um, uh, in his course, we were reading uh, Bill Zartman, who has maybe 40, 50 books behind him on international negotiations. And then I met Bill uh, one day and I was like, oh, my God, this is the human behind all of these books. And of course, I haven't read all of his books but I was like, these people have paved the way for us as teachers to have the materials. They have done the interviews with ambassadors and they have analyzed cases for us. So I think, you know, you cannot teach negotiations without having the bulk of the literature that has been written. It was the same feeling I had when um, when I met Drachman. And Peter Coleman, who I was like, oh, my God, the way these people think. But that comes after many years of studying and many PhDs and many, uh, you know, a lot of work that is invested in academic research. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't get uh, excited um, about academy as such. There are a lot of academics who write things that are useless who write things post-festum and they analyze and they make an academic career out of that. That I consider to be, you know, you did that for you, good for you. But, you know, there are people who are visionary and who are writing theory for us to be able to teach it. There are people who analyze cases from different perspectives and that's valuable to find which books, which authors are actually worthy the attention of the students who have this much time and patience is really a challenge. And very often I'm like, ah, this is really a big book. I should not <laughs> put it there in the syllabus. Uh, but maybe if I take a chapter out and uh, so I try to uh, chew the content for them and to try to make it more practical because usually I go as a visiting professor. So I have three days or five days. It is very different if you are teaching at the university a whole semester and have more courses, then you can have different interaction. But it really depends. So I think it's valuable. It is the core of what we do. And this is why I was very, very proud in 2018 when we had a meeting of the PIN group, which is Processes in International Negotiations uh, in Prague that I organized. And we launched the, um, uh, the basically the dream of uh, my mentor, Paul Mertz, um, which is the network of negotiation trainers to become part of PIN. So you have the people who are writing books and people who have been teaching negotiations academically in various universities from, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins, um, Catholic University of Louvain, Sorbonne, you know, uh, Leiden and so on. But then we knew that we also need the trainers to be attached to that so we can use that material into training the people who are doing diplomacy, people who are out there on the front line trying to make some change. A common perception when someone is a negotiator is that this person must be stiff, must be, must be solid to pursue the objectives. But then one of my favorite professors, Michael Sander at Harvard University, he ran a course about the ethics and morality in international law. So how do you, do you integrate those two, ethics and morality, in your teaching if you want to develop a strong negotiator? Mm, you know, this is, um, this is a very deep question. And uh, a colleague of mine recently um, and now he's in the Troika of the point group that I mentioned, Remis Molinsky. He's organizing the negotiation challenge with Peter Kesting for many years now. Uh, he posed the question on LinkedIn because he's starting a research on uh, good and evil, right, in negotiations. Because um, there are negotiators that are perceived 
as you know, deceitful, lying. They're using all of the immoral traits you would think, right, in order to get to what they want. Now, when you ask yourself from an analytical perspective, is that right? Is that wrong? You know, there's there's no doubt that that shouldn't be the case. But if it is a distributive process and the winner takes it all, you know, do we justify it still? You know, I how how do you go about this? So I think it's a question that goes back to the philosophical roots and uh, understanding the world as good as evil, you know, understanding the Zoroastrian um, division. We always had that, even in our Christian tradition, you have God and you have the Satan, the Satan being, you know, the uh the intellectual one who's asking all the uncomfortable questions that's why we say devil's advocate right um so there is a huge range between good and evil it's not all black and white and i think the older i get the more i see that sometimes you know somebody does certain things because it's easier for them not with the horrid intention that we see but of course i would not take the the poisonous uh, essence that some people carry with them when they start negotiations because um, it exists as well. You need to be able to identify. Now, in order for us to be able to understand, to have discussions about these topics, I think it is crucial to go back to philosophy. We have done this. We have discussed good and evil for centuries and for millennia. Um, and and there is a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, sometimes in negotiations, we have to understand that um, the two parties collide because of the different approaches, because of the different interests, uh, because of the different worldviews. But the, but the uh, skilled negotiator would be able to unpack all of that, to analyze it and to try to um, as Fisher and Yuri say, to build them a golden bridge, to basically give the way um, forward in a way that both parties can uh, can accept the final deal. So there is a huge element of ethics in negotiations, but it's very different if you're looking at diplomatic negotiations, if you're looking at bilateral negotiations. Uh, it's not the same dynamic. It's not the same intentions when China and America are negotiating and when the European countries are negotiating in the council, right? It's very different. You cannot compare those two. And they're both diplomatic. And then add to that business negotiations. They're a completely different ballgame. Then you have, uh, you know, daily negotiations um, and so on. So it really depends on what process you're in, what is it that you're looking at, and uh, what are the rules for that and whether those have been violated or not. There is a question from my students, and uh, many of them, they see diplomacy as a general field, but also there are those trendy names like sport diplomacy, health diplomacy, cyber diplomacy. And they are asking how to grab the negotiation skills if they want to be specialized or specialists in those fields. Should they go for the general negotiating uh, skill workshop or should they, you know, go for some particular ones? So how do you address those trendy names for diplomacy in your teaching? You know, when I was studying it was a challenge to find negotiations in whatever shape and form. It just didn't exist. There were no departments. There were no professors who were, you know, their, um, uh, that their expertise was negotiations. And I think it's, it's interesting to know that there are, um, there are a lot of uh, economic universities who teach negotiations because they want to prepare their students for business negotiations. But they're aware that they need a little bit of culture in there because you might be negotiating with Chinese and we really do not understand the Chinese. So you need culture. Um, so, uh, you know, they all come from different backgrounds. It really depends on um, 
on what you want to do with the negotiation skills later on. I admire your students if they know already, I want to be a negotiator in the field of um, uh, sports or soccer. There is a lot of money there. I want to go there. I don't know of any university that will teach them that. But, you know, you try to pick here and there and you make it, uh, you make the most out of what you have. Um, now, is that a field? Is medical diplomacy a field? Well, maybe it wasn't before COVID, but then we saw that we had the vaccine diplomacy, the mask diplomacy, you know, where politics played a huge role into tenders for governments to get masks and vaccines. A lot of countries uh, struggled politically because of choices they made, like Slovakia, uh, like, you know, Serbia was playing both with the Chinese and which vaccines will you get? It, it wasn't just, you know, purchased. It had a huge impact on how are we going to do this? Which side are you on? And and no health diplomacy will prepare you for that. Neither you will be in the minister's cabinet when these decisions are being made. And most likely those people who are there now never thought that they will be dealing or working in the Ministry of Health. They studied to be a lawyer or to be, you know, they studied international relations. So I admire students who know where they will be in 20 years. That was never my path. I studied comparative literature and then there was a war in my country and I started working for international organizations. So I was like, oh my God, I need to go to school to learn more about this. I was very lucky that I had, um, you know, people like Max van der Stuhl in my office, that I had some amazing names who were, and then I realized, oh my God, I, I need to learn more about uh, how this is this is done. And um, so you move from one to another and you upgrade yourself. And, you know, when this whole uh, thing started with Bulgaria and the veto, uh, and so on, I thought, I need to learn more about memory studies and how countries remember and how we, what is there, what is in psychology. So one of my colleagues, Valérie Rousseau, she offered um, a certificate course, a course uh, at the University of, Catholic University of Leuven, and I enrolled myself and I go and I learn something new. So I think it's a developing thing. You cannot just say, you know, I'm doing uh, health negotiations or I'm doing sports negotiations um, and that's where I will stay forever. I, I really think that we should be more adaptable and be able to move and use those skills um, in various fields. As you were teaching and gaining experience through the years, you acquired so many contacts, former diplomats, current diplomats, some professors, maybe guest speakers. What is that element in your teaching methods? If you know someone with experience or practical or theoretical, how do you integrate those people in your teaching methods? Or what is the role if I know someone who is influential, I'm teaching negotiations skills or workshops, how should I proceed with those people? Hmm. I I guess that is um, that is a luxury that um, professors who are working at um, you know a, academic departments can have because when you have a course and you can plan, then you're like mm, I'm talking about economic or uh, public diplomacy, and there's this guy that I know maybe he can be um, my guest lecturer. I am a guest lecturer. So I don't have that luxury of inviting other people to come to my lectures. However, what I what I discovered, especially in the COVID period, was, you know, I'm ha having um, a training online and I'm like, I want to invite some of my younger colleagues to see how I'm doing things. They will give me feedback, right? That COVID opened up that opportunity for us to work together, learn from each other, because we don't have often that opportunity. In order for my colleague Franz to come from the Netherlands to Central Asia, somebody needs to pay for his trip. But when it was online, it was like, we can do this together and maybe I can give him the floor. And so I think that um, it is it is very nice to have the opportunities to collaborate, to hear people talk. I remember 
I'll give you an example. Um, when I was doing a model OSC in Kyrgyzstan, uh, at the time, the British ambassador was Charles Garrett, who was before that ambassador in Macedonia, and we became very close friends uh, in that time uh, with his wife and daughter in particular. And um, I invited him to be our guest speaker at the uh, at the event. But it's easy because he was in the country. He can come. He was happy to do a lecture. Now, if you're asking me about academic course, that's a completely different thing, you know, uh, and it involves different finances, different planning. Uh, of course, I know tons of people and I would like to always use them in my trainings, but I cannot often do that. However, being on the outside and knowing a lot of other people in international organizations has given me the idea to do things. For instance, in 2015, when it was the 40th anniversary of uh, the Helsinki Final Act, I proposed to the university where I'm teaching here in Prague, uh, that um, you know we can organize a specialized seminar on Helsinki because I think it is a crucial historical moment, which was the foundation of the Charter 77. Uh, and I think our students who are studying international relations should know where that came from. What were the negotiations? What is the document that the Charter is calling on saying, you know, these are the rights that we want respected and so on. And so we organized that. And I used the people that I knew in the OSC in Vienna um, to basically have my students be exposed to amazing people that I have learned from to see the places where these things have happened. Um, but you need to have on the other side people who are willing to do that. And I'm glad that the university at the time allowed for that. Uh, we had a visit to the OSC Prague office that you mentioned in the beginning, which for many of them became, you know, um, then... The, they were so inspired that they wanted to write their master thesis about either OSC or the Helsinki Final Act and so on. In terms of skills, uh, many students, they always, always want to know which skills do I need so I can become a diplomat or negotiator or representative of international organizations. So based on your experience and practice, can we sum up some, let's say, top five or top three like core skills that you would like to see when you can have negotiators, diplomats facing at the table? You know, um, I think it's a very individual thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the things that I want to see is authenticity, that you are yourself, that you're not trying to be something else. I see a lot of women who are trying to be men. Oh. Because that's that's how it is in order okay. to be, you know, you need to be, you know, the traditionally male, alpha male kind of features. Uh, and I think that's changing with all of this, um, you know, feminist approach to diplomacy. Uh, I see that change. I think it's okay, uh, you know, to wear a dress nowadays. I remember when I started working, the first thing I had to buy was a suit and it involved pants because I needed to look like the other people in my office. And um, being authentic, I think, is valuable. Now we understand that negotiation processes have to be inclusive and that my boss should care about my opinion as a person and as a woman, additionally, right? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, instead of going into uh, a process in order to win, and to impose your views and to convince them that what you want is right and you should get it, I think um, it is very important to, to learn how to actively listen and how you can move beyond the positions, beyond what is being said, but rather to understand why is it that they're saying this? Why do they want this? What does that mean to them? What concessions I can then make? And that requires serious listening. That does not require, I'm on my phone. What, you said something? Oh, then talk to your colleagues. No, it requires serious dedication to the dialogue process. And very often, unfortunately, I have a feeling that instead of uh, seeing dialogue as a process of open and reflective speaking, uh, hearing, learning, 
and discovery that is unfamiliar to us until now, we actually think we are in dialogue. And this is what Peter Coleman calls misconception of dialogue. Uh, and it is a debate or criticism or other form of oppositional confrontation, closed communication process of persuasion and influence that is aimed at winning an agreement. Wow. For me, you know, when I think about this, this is really failed negotiations because we have been talking, you know, in different frequencies. We have been talking at each other, not with each other. So I think to be a successful negotiator, you have to be a very good and careful listener as well. And maybe, but there are tons. Maybe the last thing that I would like to say when I said it's individual, it is because we all are different persons. So what comes to me naturally is not a skill that I need to learn. But what comes to other person naturally for me is something that I need to invest time and practice how to be generous, how to have empathy. Some people just don't have it. They need to practice that. And these, this is why it's important to understand your personality and to have that psychological profile worked out a little bit uh, to do that gymnastics of who am I and who is the person sitting across from me. And I spend a lot of time working with my students on understanding psychological profiles in order for them to know how to approach somebody and not to press those red buttons, like very often is the case. The last question for today's interview. What is the role of language in negotiations? Because we know that the majority of the world, they those people are not, na not native English speakers. They uh -huh. speak Spanish, Chinese, Russian, many other languages. And I found that sometimes those people have excellent ideas, but they are a little bit shy to express them because maybe they are not 100% grammatically correct in English, or they don't have the ability to get the sentence together at the right moment. So how uh -huh. would you address the role of language in negotiations? You know, I my first bachelor's degree um, is um, my title is uh, graduated philologist. So I come from this field. I am in this field because of the meaning of the word, because of the cultural context in which we develop and express ourselves the way we do. And I think that is so enriching. You know, very often when you are at some uh, business meeting, you are so impatient because you are there for a reason and you want things to go fast. And we don't have the luxury of sitting there and learning about the other person. I have 15 minutes. You better be fast and tell me what you want so I can tell you what we can do together or not. And this is what negotiations usually entail. So um, that is why in China that that approach doesn't go very uh, far because they want to know you as a person. Can I trust you? Building trust requires more than 15 minutes. It's a building up of a relationship and so on. Um, so language as such is trying, uh, th that is our manifestation of what we're thinking. But if you're not thinking in that language, if that is difficult for you, the message that you're sending across will obviously be impaired. It will be broken. You will not be authentic. You will not be saying exactly what you want. Then it's just easy to find an interpreter, but a good one. Interpreters are very, very difficult. Uh, I worked as an interpreter in the beginning of the conflict in my country in 2001. And... Um, to be able to understand what that person is trying to send as a message across, to really get the meaning and the essence of it to the other party is not an easy job. But if you're not a native speaker, and if language is an issue, it's much better to ask for uh, expert assistance rather than to improvise, because um, languages are important. And the first definitions of what a good diplomatist is, as Nicholson would say, is somebody who speaks at least four languages, including Latin, including ancient Greek. And those days are over. Now we're like, 
You speak English, French is almost off the table. It used to be, you know, the diplomatic language. Nowadays, you know, people are like, I can get by without French. I'd rather focus on Mandarin. So people are very pragmatic about which languages they learn. But I think what we're all forgetting is that, you know, knowing the language on the surface will not suffice. You need to understand the culture behind the language. And very smart negotiators often bring an interpreter with them, even if they understand everything, even if they can say things. And actually, they use their time when, while the interpreter is telling them things to think about the response, right? But if there are nuances that they will not catch, you have somebody to ask. And that's what I would recommend. But in the meantime, for everybody who wants to be a negotiator, learn languages and learn as many as you can and better um, uh, really uh, invest your time in learning the language well. Ida, thank you very much for your time, insightful thoughts and remarks about negotiation skills in terms of teaching. I wish you lots of energy for your work because I, I can imagine it, it's it's hard task to teach negotiation skills, especially across different cultures, as you also but said. But I love it. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I fully understand. And also the languages, as you just explained. So thank you again for being on Ayur Thinker. Thank you very much for inviting me. It really was a pleasure. And I hope that this uh, stirs some discussions in somebody else's classroom. And um, I'm looking forward to us meeting again somewhere, maybe uh, not Prague next time. Thank you very much. And see you next time. See you. Bye-bye.